everybody. Welcome to Tour Guide Tell All. We are your friendly neighborhood uh, tour guides here to share with you some of the more fun, scandalous, darker sides of American history. We are so excited to be back. It's fall. It's beautiful. We've been out pounding the pavement leading tours. So it's so nice to have a moment to sit, relax, and dig into a pretty pivotal moment in American history. Um, but before we jump in, as always, I'm Becca. I'm Rebecca. And together we're the Rebecca's. Every time I do that now, I think of Garrett. So that's for you, Garrett. <laughs> um, awesome. Well, we are so excited to be back. Uh, it's October. We've definitely been, I think, gearing into uh, kind of a bit of a spooky vibe for our episodes. And I actually would posit that this definitely qualifies our topic today because it was a truly sort of terrifying moment in American history. Uh, not to spoil too much, but sort of on the brink of of total disaster. You could, there have been many movies about this topic, but you could really do kind of a horror style ticking clock kind of movie, uh, Hitchcock-esque thriller about something like this. So um, this ties in perfectly to what we've been doing a lot of this month, which is of course, our ghost tours. We're in ghost tour, uh, true crime scandal season. Uh, we love all our podcast listeners. We are so glad you guys are tuning in, listening in. But if you're in the DC area, if you're coming to visit, be sure to check out dcbyfoot.com. We actually have a brand new website, thanks to our wonderful colleague, Candon. Uh, so new website, uh, lots of new info, um, but we're pretty much up and running and we will be through the holidays. So check it out. Um, if you're a podcast listener and you come on a tour, let us know. We love meeting you guys in person. That's been a really fun aspect of this summer was getting to meet some of our listeners listeners on tour. Um, and we have a ton of great audio tour options as well and some self-guided uh, tours. If you're a local and tour times don't work for you, you can always go out uh, with one of our self-guided tours. So um, as much as we love podcasting, we love tour guiding even more. So we hope uh, if you get a chance, you'll come out and join us. So Rebecca, do you want to talk about our topic? Yes, I very much do. So we're it's October and I we wanted to do something a little spookier. And so I thought, what's scarier than the end of the world? So that's literally what we're going to talk about. Uh, we're going to talk about the Cuban Missile Crisis. But before we do, before we get into that topic, I have to we have to issue a correction and uh, an apology to you, our dear listeners. Last week or last month, sorry, we did an entire episode about McKinley and his assassination. And Becca, we forgot to mention the other most important person who was present at McKinley's assassination. We did. We did. We didn't even mention Robert Todd Lincoln. I guess well, breeze by him that he was there. I think because we've already done the entire Robert Todd Lincoln episode. We did. I know. But I feel like we should at least mention that he was in the room. That's so true. That's so true. So I just would like to apologize and just mention for the, as a, an addendum, a coda, um, that Robert Todd Lincoln was in the room too. <laughs> but to move to pivot, we're going to talk about the Cuban Missile Crisis. And the Cuban Missile Crisis, there's a lot of backgroundy stuff and almost all the backgroundy stuff we could talk about could be its own, like, several podcast episodes. So <laughs> are you implying that the Cold War was kind of a big deal? It was kind of a big deal and a little complicated. So we're going to also like our relationship with Cuba. The United States relationship with Cuba is complicated. <laughs> but so we're going to breeze through some of that. We're going to do a little background, but we're not, you know, forgive us that we're not going into huge depth because we actually want to make this 
pod, you know, somewhat not a thousand hours. Uh, so the Cold War is the backdrop to all of this. In the aftermath of World War II, our one-time ally, United States one-time allies, the Soviet Union, is going to become our enemy. Uh, and it's an, a new kind of a war, which is something that takes a while for both sides to sort of feel their way through. The United States and the, United, the USSR don't fight each other. They... They're sort of friends, but frenemies, I feel like is a good way to put it. We are not enemies, like we don't face off on the battlefield, but we're certainly not friends. We're not allies. And the Cold War is something that develops kind of over time. And the way we think about it, because we're you know older and we live through it, is that it just has always been there. But the Cold War is something that gets you know, different presidents are going to feel their way through how we're going to deal with the Soviets, how we're going to deal with the growing threat of communism coming out of Eastern Europe. And Stalin in the aftermath of World War II basically takes most of Eastern Europe as satellite countries, sort of client states. And the United States is, um, we have Western Europe as our allies. And the basically the point is that we're going to fight over the rest of the world. Soviet Union is going to try to persuade third world countries to be on their side. In fact, this is the origin of the term third world. The idea of the first world is the United States and our Western allies. The second world is communism and their communist allies. And the third world is everybody else who we're going to fight over. And so the ground, we're fighting in South America. We're fighting in Africa. We're fighting in Asia. We, and it, by fighting, I mean trying to persuade different governments to be allies of ours. I, I want to jump in too and just note that um, when we're sort of talking about how the Soviet, I'm sorry, how the Cold War with the Soviet Union sort of plays out, a big element of this too is espionage, right? This is where we see a huge boom of our intelligence agencies of really putting time and resource and money into espionage where we're really starting to put Americans around the world to gather intelligence, to infiltrate into other governments, to infiltrate into other places. So certainly espionage has been part of American history from the beginning, right? George Washington recognizes the importance of intelligence gathering in the American Revolution, but this is like an unprecedented boom in the terms of how seriously we take having intelligence agents around the world. Yes. And, you know, the, the colonial period is ending. And so all those states are kind of up for grabs as like the British Empire is sort of deaccessioning all of its countries and they're becoming independent. And so it's just this really dynamic period uh, throughout the late 40s into the 50s of sort of people lining up like dominoes on one side or the other. And it's this, from the United States perspective, and a lot of this story comes from the United States perspective, or at least that's how we're going to tell it, is you're either for us or against us as far as capitalism. We're capitalists, which means we're free. Communists is a command economy, and the idea is that they are not free. And so it's this titanic struggle between these two opposing worldviews. And communism does have 
and did at the time have this idea that we're going to take over the world. And so the United States really fears that as countries fall to communism, that it's spreading and it's going to spread to our allies and eventually spread to us. So China falls in 1949. North Korea has be, has gone communist. North We're struggling in North Vietnam. They are flirting with communism. And so there's this very real sense of like we're losing this battle to um, the Soviet Union and they're taking over, they're on the march. And that's gonna kind of dovetail with our relationship with Cuba, which is also really complicated. And spoiler alert, the United States does not come out as the good guy for a lot of this. Our relationship with Cuba is not great. Um, we, we have had, so Cuba has been independent by the time of the, um, we're gonna talk about the, this is the early 60s. And Cuba was independent, it had a, but nominally. For a long, long time, the United States basically forces the Cubans to accept something called the Platt Amendment, which basically says that they can't really do anything that the US doesn't want them to do, which is not sovereign, that's not sovereignty, that's not an independent country. We basically approve all of their major decisions and their leaders. And for a long time, there was a leader called Fulgencio Batista, who was basically a strongman, a dictator, and he is going to get supplanted in 1959 by a man named Fidel Castro. You might have heard of him. Uh, Fidel Castro is going to pre preach revolution. He is he's communist aligned, and so he is very quickly going to talk about how America is bad, and align himself with the Soviet Union. And this is 1959, the sort of waning days of the Eisenhower administration, and they are going to game out a scenario to invade Cuba. It doesn't end up taking place before Eisenhower leaves office uh, at the very beginning of 1961. And so what's going to happen is Kennedy, our brand new president in the beginning of 1961, is going to be presented with this invasion plan. And he is told that they th the CIA is very certain that uh, support for Castro is weak and that he's basically just clinging on to power and that all he needs to do is okay this invasion at something called the Bay of Pigs and that the Cubans will rush to the Americans and we will sort of restore order in Cuba. And Kennedy greenlights this invasion uh, in April of 1961, which is literally three months into his first term, his term, and it goes terribly, terribly. It has been described, the, what I read in the ramp up to this was the Bay of Pigs is called the perfect failure. It fails on literally every level. The CIA fails, the, the, it just, it's terrible. There, there's no, turns out to be no real Cuban resistance to Castro. They seem to be pretty happy with him. It, the invasion, we don't, we, we even down to we have we, bombers that miss their targets, like a majority of them. You know, we, we've just come out of being this dominant power in like World War II, and we've yeah. been like really establishing our military prowess, and yet somehow <laughs> this this moment is just so poorly executed. Like when you look at the real data of like of the targets, I think they hit ten percent of what they were trying to get to. It's just cra it's crazy to think, you know. It's insane. They did apparently like 10 or 15 years ago, maybe more, uh, they did like a review of this. Like they got all the participants who are still alive together. And first of all, they all are still angry about it. 
And it's just, it was a failure on every level. Militarily, the CIA fails. There is, they don't even do, like the place where they're landing, they really have not scouted the area very well. They don't know the literal terrain. So it's just, the Bay of Pigs is a huge humiliation. And I should mention too, it ends with, uh, we have prisoners that are in captivity for more, almost Mm -hmm. two years. Mm -hmm. The United States has to negotiate a massive settlement of like $53 million worth of supplies in order to get these prisoners released. So not only is the invasion sort of this failure, but then there's sort of this lingering embarrassment of how do we get these prisoners released? Then we have to turn all this this money and supply over to Castro. So it's just like the shadow that really I think is cast over Kennedy's presidency from the get-go. Oh yeah, and Kennedy, you know, we could pause for a minute and talk a little bit about him. Kennedy's the youngest man we've ever elected to the White House. And he's the voice of a new generation. Like he says that in his inaugural address and it is actually kind of true. He's like, represents a new generation of American leadership. He, Kennedy, unlike all the guys who precede him, Kennedy has been tested in World War II on the ground. Like Eisenhower was Supreme Allied Commander, obviously. So he was in World War II, but he wasn't like, Kennedy was on a PT boat in the Pacific. So he was a young man. Uh, Eisenhower was obviously important, but not young, I think. Um, And so this is the first, Kennedy marks the first uh, of a lot of presidents who their sort of youthful moment was World War II. Like we talked about this with our World War I episode and how that's going to inform, you know, FDR, Hoover, Truman, Eisenhower. That's the sort of searing moment of their youth. For Kennedy and for the guys that come after immediately after him, there's the searing moment of their youth is World War II. So they see things in uh, a domino effect. The the word appeasement is used in this crisis by the Kennedys in a very real and scary context. The allies appeased Hitler and look what he did. And so that's very much in his mind. That's in the mind of all the guys who are around him that we cannot appease the Soviet Union because all they'll do is take more. Like you give them an inch and they'll continue to take. And that's gonna inform this too. Kennedy is young, he's very bright. He's got bright guys around him and they are all men because this is still the 60s. But overwhelmingly young too. Kennedy surrounds himself with many of what would be his peers, his generation, his his peer group. Uh, and they, they this embarrassment so early into his presidency is going to be on everyone's mind. It's going to shade every decision and choice they make going forward. And there's this idea that Kennedy's kind of a wimp too. And I honestly don't know where this comes from. Kennedy was a hero. He was decorated during World War II. Like he was not like, you know, I don't know. Maybe because he was rich. You know, it's he's Kennedy. We we could do. We really oh. haven't done a lot of in-depth episodes on Kennedy yet. But I mean, it is sort of this two sides of him, right? He is this war hero. He's this athlete. He's this. I think you know has this World War II experience. But he also is an East Coast elite, Ivy mm-hmm. Leaguer, right? rich playboy about town. And so you could certainly see, depending on how you felt about him or how your your particular particular political winds blew, you might be able to paint him as, as one or the other and not both, which he really was. Right. And so this shade, this is weeks into his presidency. It shades 
everything. His commanders don't trust him. He doesn't trust his commanders. There's a lot of like old guard Eisenhower guys still in the State Department and still at defense. And they're really nervous about Kennedy. And they're really nervous about the Kennedy guys. And they're nervous about Robert McNamara, who Kennedy has asked to leave a multi-million dollar position at Ford Motor Company to head the Defense Department. So they're, they don't trust him. He's not trusted. And he doesn't trust them since they told him that it would be fine in the Bay of Pigs. And it very much was not. And so that's sort of the background to a lot of this. And the, the, for Cuba, for Castro, the result, obviously, of Bay of Pigs, as you could have predicted, it would be the result, which is it's going to send Castro running into the arms of the Soviet Union, like just full on embracing communism. And yeah. Castro had been kind of lukewarm. I think Castro, there's a real sense that Castro is an opportunist and I don't know enough about him to I think that's a fair assessment. <laughs> I think that it really is. And this is going to be like his moment. We're like, okay, obviously the United States is like, they wish me ill. And so he runs into the arms of our enemy, which is like the most predictable result in the world, honestly. <laughs> and so a word quickly before we delve into 1962, a word about nuclear weapon, geopolitics and nuclear weapons and delivery systems. And here's the word. Having nuclear weapons is bad. They are very bad. But having a delivery system is a whole different thing. So it is one thing to have a nuclear weapon, but if you don't have a way to get it to your enemies, to literally fire it upon your enemies, does it do you much good? I don't know. So we develop nuclear weapons, the United States does very famously, at the very end of World War II. And we're the only nuclear power, to date we are the only nuclear power that has detonated a nuclear bomb uh, on Japan. Four years later, the Soviet Union is going to get nuclear weapons. And this is, adds a whole different shading to the Cold War because suddenly they can match us. They have, they explode a thermonuclear test at some point later on, but the Soviet Union is far away. And unlike us, they don't have a global Navy. So they don't have a way to get these weapons reliably to us. You can't fire them from Moscow over Europe and try to hit the United States. Like we will see them and shoot them down. Like that's pretty easy. Um, you can fire them from the West Coast, but that's or like to the West Coast. But what, if you're the Soviet Union, you wanna hit Washington because that's the political center. You wanna hit New York because that's the financial center. And so the Soviet Union throughout the 50s has nuclear weapons, but not a reliable delivery system. And so for them, having a base in the new world, somewhere in a Caribbean island, let's say, some Caribbean island that might be 90 miles off the coast of Florida, say, is a big deal. Because suddenly what Khrushchev, who's the premier of the Soviet Union, suddenly what he sees is, hey, if we put nuclear weapons in Cuba. It's a launch pad. It's a launch pad. We could hit Miami, Atlanta, Washington, maybe New York. And that's going to change the game. And the United States, we have a global Navy. More than that, we have Jupiter missiles in Turkey, which can hit targets in the Soviet Union. So we have them where we want them, but they can't really reliably get to us. And that's sort of what's going to inform all of this. And so in July of 1962, Castro, and again, this is about a year after the Bay of Pigs disaster, Castro and uh, Khrushchev are going to reach a secret agreement to install offensive nuclear weapons in Cuba. And the goal is to prevent 
another U.S. invasion of Cuba, which, given that we had just tried it, is not like the craziest thing in the world. Now, what, Kast- what Khrushchev is going to say publicly is obviously we're not going to put any offensive weapons in Cuba. That would be bad. Like we're helping them to defend themselves, which is obviously their sovereign right and blah, blah, blah. But we would not upset the delicate balance of, you know, world power by putting offensive weapons in Cuba. So that's his public stance. But his private stance is he's going to start sending guys over to Cuba to build these nuclear missile silos. Kennedy doesn't know this, obviously. Um, the construction sites are going to uh, construction on the missile sites begin in the late summer, and the U.S. spots the buildup on a routine surveillance. So we fly planes over Cuba, and it takes pictures, and we say, "Hey, wait a minute, this looks different. <laughs> these weren't here before. These weren't here before. They look." Big. And if you see the pictures, like you can find them online. I saw them like doing the um, prep for this. It, to me, it just looks like trees. Like, you know, they're building something. Could be a house, could be a school. Who knows? I don't know. But apparently to, you know, the CIA or whatnot, it looks very much like uh, medium range ballistic missiles, which is bad. And... A routine, so on September 4th, Kennedy is going to warn about offensive weapons in Cuba. And so this is very much on their radar. They're looking out for this. They're like, they're going to increase the um, sort of spy plane activity, the U-2 flights over Cuba. And um, on October 14th, a U-2 flight spots these ICBMs literally being installed. So it's a month later, we, we made a warning and yet this work has continued. It's still there. And it takes a day to get the film back to Washington to process it. And so the next day, October 15th, it's brought to the president and Kennedy is going to um, convene a um, panel of national security experts, calls it the Executive Committee of the National Security Com- Council or XCOM, Kennedy administration is full of really terrible like acronyms for things. It's really <laughs> And all of the, like, they're going to look around and they're going to say, hey, these are bad. This is, he's doing exactly what we warned him against. And so they're going to have a couple of different, they're basically divided on what their, their response is going to be. The, all of the joint chiefs are going to argue for an airstrike followed by an invasion of Cuba. Shocking. Shocking. First of all, it should be simple. And and it should be worth noting that after the Bay of Pigs, there had begun work on what was deemed Operation Mongoose, which was Mm -hmm. sort of this potential plan to go back into Cuba, invade, and potentially assassinate Castro. So the military, uh, particularly the Joint Chiefs and I think Kennedy's, those older school um, military advisors, had been itching to go invade. (laughs) And this gives them a really good reason to do so, right? And on on its face, right? They're building weapons against us. We should go in and and quash it. Right. And this is like, this is catching Hitler before he invades Czechoslovakia in 1938. That's what they liken this to. And this is their moment to, to sort of reverse the errors that their fathers made. 
You know, the Allies had given in repeatedly to Hitler and look what it led to. And so they are determined that now that it's their moment, they're going to stop this nonsense in its tracks. They're going to invade, they're going to take over. And that's kind of where their thinking is. And other people in the sort of XCOM are um, going to issue, they, are, they think that what we should do is issue a stern warning, basically pursue a diplomatic course. And so you have basically both sides of the coin, which are opposite ends. One is like full-scale invasion and war, threatening nuclear war. And the other is like, oh, a sternly worded letter. Yeah, which is also sort of like, okay. Okay, like- <laughs> I'm oh, sure okay. Khrushchev is gonna say, I mean, we've already issued a warning in September that was ignored. Yes. I'm not exactly sure what the the more peaceful advisors think is gonna happen with another strongly worded warning. Right, like clearly the strongly worded letters aren't working. And Kennedy very wisely, I think, in this moment, obviously doesn't want to invade because the buck stops with him and he knows it. And they're not the ones who are going down. Like he, And Kennedy will uh, say like to his close advisors, like, yeah, that's one thing for these guys to talk about invading, but the buck stops with me. Like I'm the commander in chief and I'm going to, it's going to look badly when it fails on me. And Hey, remember, and Hey, remember the Bay of pigs, this is looming large in his mind, right? That I was told that that was going to go well. And now I've got military advisors telling me, Oh, we can bomb them, invade them and it's going to work. Well, is it? (laughs) So I think there's, if the Bay of pigs had not occurred, how he would have felt about military action in this moment could have been very different. Yes. Um, And so Kennedy is ultimately going to pursue kind of a middle course. And it's sort of genius what he comes, what they come up with. They are going to come up with something that they call a quarantine, but is actually a blockade. But you can't call it a blockade. You can't call it a blockade because a blockade apparently implies a a state of war, which we don't have and we're not ready to declare. So we're going to call it a quarantine to sort of bring down the temperature. Quarantines are what you do with sick people. It's fine. It's, you know, it's, it's a helpful measure. And so basically they blockade Cuba. We put our, you know, troops in international waters around Cuba to intercept all these Soviet ships coming with these big nuclear missiles, and we call it a quarantine. And Kennedy is also going to communicate directly with Khrushchev about this. And this is like a a language that they're kind of, they're talking to each other. Like Kennedy and Khrushchev are talking to each other through the use of this quarantine that they're creating. And Khrushchev is on October 24th, uh, going to um, and so this sits for a couple of days. Like they, he sees the fi- um, the film for the first time on October fifteenth. He goes for this quarantine on October twenty second. So it's a week later, and every day of this week, he's meeting multiple times a day with this XCOM, trying to figure out what they're going to do. And on the twenty fourth, he uh, Khrushchev is going to respond that the blockade is an act of war, it's an act of aggression, and that Soviet ships are going to continue to Cuba. So basically you're gonna have to bomb us if you want us to stop. 
And I, I will jump in and say, in this sort of intervening time, the president has gone on national television. He's talked to the public. So if you are the average Joe Schmo American, you're like, okay, our ships are there. Yeah. These Soviet ships are coming. Yeah. And so the mood of the nation, right, is really impacted because a lot of what's happening is happening behind closed doors. But Kennedy has gone on national television to basically explain what he's doing, the potential global consequences if this escalates. Uh, mm -hmm. He says it shall be the policy of this nation to regard any nuclear missile launch from Cuba against any nation in the Western Hemisphere as an attack by the Soviet Union on the United States, requiring a full retaliatory response. So he goes on TV and basically says, if anything happens, we are going to war with the Soviets. Right. <laughs> Which so like is a terrifying thing to have someone go on TV in 1962 and say that. Right. And this is like the Monroe Doctrine for like new, the nuclear age. And it is terrifying to people. Like, and then he he says that, and then there's, like, no other word. Right, and then there's, like, days of silence. And I can just imagine, like, this is obviously the 60s. There's no, like, 24-hour cable news, you know? And so they don't have hourly updates. But no one, like, it seems like they provide just enough information to the public to cause panic and then no additional information to sort of help people out. And this is, like, two weeks of, like, complete and total panic. People are freaking out. And this is, like... Again, they have lived for the last decade plus with the idea of, you know, kids hiding under their desks at school because of nuclear war. Like, this is very much that generation. They have grown up with this. They are, uh, nuclear war is an ever-present threat. And this is, we are now on the true brink. Right, this is it. Like, we're on the brink of war. They can get to us in minutes, right? And... They're bringing their nuclear weapons over on a boat from Cuba and who it's just, it's all, it's happening. This is it. And so what happens next gets a little bit confusing. So on the 25th and 26th, so Khrushchev's going to announce that he sees this blockade as an act of aggression and that his ships are going to continue through anyway. On the 25th and 26th though, several ships turn back away from Cuba, back towards the Soviet Union. Some, try, some get through, they are searched by American uh, warships and are not found to contain anything objectionable. And so they continue on through. And so what it looks very much like is Khrushchev trying to avoid a nuclear conflict has ordered the nuclear weapons to turn around. The ships with the nukes are turning around back to the Soviet Union. The ships without are going through. And so it looks like things are working, right? But, like the block, but they're not. They kind of are, yeah. It looks better. It, it starts to look, I think, like, okay, yeah, like he's turning around and things are going for the better. But it, like you said, it's much more complicated than that. However, we're still doing these spy, U-2 spy planes over Cuba. And we are, um, they're showing that these, the nuclear weapons that are already there are almost ready. And what JFK is being told, what Kennedy's being told is, we need to hit them before these are operational. That a strike, an airstrike will take care of these, but only until they're operational. And then if we launch airstrikes, they can launch the nuclear weapons. So Kennedy is hearing that we have a limited amount of time. 
And I should say at this moment, they decide to move uh, our forces into DEFCON 2, which yes. essentially means the Strategic Air Command is ready to go to war immediately. Yes. And, and he's being told that this is the necessary action because we are going to have to move. Yes. And again, everybody's freaking out. And at this point, something happens that I think no one anticipates, <laughs> which is there is a back channel communique, which is amazing to me. Um, a journalist, ABC News correspondent John Scully approaches the White House with a back channel communication from a Soviet agent. It's so dramatic. It's like a, it's like a movie. <laughs> it is like a movie. And in fact, it's in a movie. This yeah. is like the major plot point of the movie about the Cuban Missile Crisis. And it turns out that like this Soviet agent is a spy. We know who he is. Like he's on our radar too. Like we know he's operating here. But what we don't know is apparently he knows Khrushchev from back in the day. Like they served together in World War II. And so Khrushchev is turning to somebody he trusts to get his message to Kennedy. And the message basically is this very emotional message talking about a resolution. And uh, they, he talks about how we have to prevent war. He's going to remove the nukes. And we, he just wants a pledge that the United States will not invade Cuba. However, the next day, Khrushchev is back in public yelling about war. And so Kennedy's got these two conflicting, very opposed uh, things coming out of Khrushchev's mouth, literally. One is about how we need to find a resolution to this. We have to prevent war. It is our duty to prevent like nuclear conflict. And the other is that, you know, very like bellicose and like, you know, this is terrible. This is an aggression. This cannot stand. Like we're going to go to war. And so Kennedy is not really sure. And none of his advisors are really sure which end is up. Which is, which is authentic, which is real. Uh, in Khrushchev's message, he says, uh, then let us not only relax the forces pulling on the ends of the rope, let us take measures to untie that knot, which essentially to me sort of is this message of we could actually get ourselves to a more stable ground with this Cold War beyond Cuba, right? So he's really making this appeal. And then he gets on TV and he's doing public messages about Soviet dominance and and bringing nukes to Cuba. And it's very, very hard to tell what is legitimate. What is the so real what, hope he has? Right. What is really happening here? And so Kennedy decides, after a lot of thought, he decides to ignore the second part. He assumes, and there is actually a reason to support this at the time, that the second Christian's yelling about war and is done for an audience that he is trying to demonstrate to the hardliners in his administration that he is, you know, he's trying to shore up his own political backyard. You know, he's trying to show that he's tough, that he won't take this aggression from the United States. He's trying to sort of, you know, shore up his own position at home. And so Kennedy decides, and this is a risky proposition, he decides to ignore the second part of Khrushchev's message. And he focuses on the first part. And he basically is going to send his brother, Bobby, who is attorney general, 
to meet with the Soviet ambassador, Anatoly Dobrin. And this and is in this, secret, totally in secret meeting. Totally in secret. They have this super cloak and dagger like deal where Bobby Kennedy gets out of like three different cars and drives around DC at night and ends up at the Soviet embassy in the back, like the back alley. And it's all very like cloak and dagger. And almost no one other than Kennedy knows that Bobby is doing this. This right. is kept very secret from military advisors, from even people yes. close. Yes. Which is... Super great, I think. Not at all, really. Um, so Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy meets with Dobrynin and they essentially work out a deal. So we accept, and Bobby Kennedy tells Dobrynin that we're going to accept the first, Khrushchev's first letter. We are going to, um, the nuclear, the nukes in Cuba, we're going to send a pledge not to invade Cuba. There has to be weapons inspectors that go into Cuba to ensure that the nuclear material is being removed. And then Bobby Kennedy says, in six months, we will remove some of our Jupiter missiles from Turkey. Has to be later so that there's no linkage in the public mind because we cannot be seen to be giving something up to the Soviet Union. But that's the quid pro quo that we'll give you. What Kennedy does not tell Dobrynin and what the United States does not tell the Soviet Union is that these Jupiter missiles in Turkey are obsolete anyway. But it lets them have a win. Like it lets them have something. Everybody gets to save face. We avoid nuclear war, which is obviously good for all, <laughs> for everybody. And Khrushchev, then two days later, is going to announce that they're going to withdraw the nuclear weapons from Cuba. So basically, that wins. The gambit wins. Dobrynin brings the message back to the Soviet Union. Khrushchev agrees to it. We're, this is what we're going to do. And this, like, October 28th is the end. Like, if you read, like, official histories of this, like, this is when it ends. The world relaxes. We're not going to have a war. It's going to be really great. But there is actually a coda to this. There's a Cuban coda. Uh, the world thinks this is over. And then Castro says, wait, no. Hang on. Castro is such an interesting player in this. Like, he did this because he wants to be important. He wants to play with the big boys and that's his way of doing it. Like getting, you know, aligning himself with the Soviet Union against the United States makes, he thinks will make him important and a player on the world stage. But what ends up happening, what, he sets this all in motion and then the two superpowers duke it out themselves and leave him behind in the dust. And so Castro's angry about this like this was his moment and it's been stolen by this larger drama and so Castro's just going to decide you know what you guys made this agreement about um uh, UN uh, independent United Nations weapons inspectors and didn't bother to ask me I'm not allowing weapons inspectors in my on sovereign Cuban territory you didn't clue me in which also, I very much intend to use whatever weapons you have given me if I feel that the U.S. is going to try to invade. Like, his intention is absolutely to use these weapons. Sure. And so, like, Castro basically says, your pledge of invading, of non-invading Cuba is no good to me. I don't believe you. And you didn't, bot like, this is, you're fighting over what happens to Cuba, but no one has bothered to consult Cuba. Huh. And so 
Castro refuses the weapons inspectors. And so now this entire deal is threatening to be basically scuttled because Castro's not going along with the plan. And so Kennedy and Khrushchev have to revisit the deal. And ultimately, what Khrushchev is going to order is this basically like a pantomime. Basically, he orders that the ships, they take out the nuclear weapons, put them on ships. And when these Soviet ships get into international waters, they're ordered to take the like tarp off of these nukes so that US spy planes can fly overhead and witness that the nuclear weapons are being moved out of Cuba. That's literally what they have to do, which is like insanity. And that's basically the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis. Now there are a couple aftermaths to this. First of all, it freaks everybody out big time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this really is, I, you know, we're talking very high level about what Kennedy and Khrushchev are doing, but for the average American, right, there's this sense that, you know, people really are walking around for two weeks thinking the world will end. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like there's a, you can see pictures online of people will go and line up at churches. You know, people want to like have a priest hear their last confession if they're Catholic or go, you know, whatever religious thing. Like they will literally get in line outside of religious um, houses and because this is the end of the world. How are we going to, you know, what's going to happen? How, how is this going to resolve itself? I also think, you know, we see this as something that will ultimately fuel more of the counterculture that's going to emerge out of the 1960s. This sense of you know, we need to seek peace. We need to not be at war. We can't possibly have the lives of hundreds of millions of people around the world in the hands of one or two powerful men. Um, there's the sense that there's too much power, um, too much power in the hands of a small number of people. And this is going to fuel that. Uh, so this has a couple of immediate effects. First of all, this is going to lead to the creation of the red phone which is something that I think we all grew up with. Like if you grew up after the 60s, I remember there being a red phone. Uh, This is the red phone is installed early the next year between the Kremlin and the White House so that the premier and the president can literally pick up the phone and talk to each other. It also is going to lead to a, um, the limited test ban treaty, which is started the next year. Basically they're going to limit uh, testing nuclear weapons. Non-proliferation treaty is going to be signed in 1968. So just about six years later, obviously, not by Kennedy, uh, but this is going to lead to a very real reconsideration of how we deal with the Soviet Union in a nuclear era, how these weapons are, need to be dealt with in a special way. It's also going to be cre- the creation of the nuclear football immediately after this. So we remember, I remember, and I take people to see this at museums, there is the nuclear football at the American History Museum. Like, I remember President Reagan having the nuclear football with him at all times. In fact, I remember there being a kind of a big deal this past inauguration with Biden in the nuclear football. Like this is still a thing. Presidents are still surrounded by someone who has the access to nuclear weapons wherever they go. So this is going to lead to the creation of that sort of a more responsible way of managing uh, the fact that we have nuclear weapons and the Soviets have nuclear weapons and that we need to have lines of communication and treaties in place to deal with this. It is seen as the defining moment of the Kennedy presidency. It is sort of his basically finest hour. And Kennedy's president for just under three years. So there's not like a full body of work that you'd see with like a a full term president. Uh, And so this is like his defining moment. And it also is going to help weaken Khrushchev, which is 
ultimately what Khrushchev had worried would happen, uh, which is why he's going to make these really sort of you know, bombastic statements about war. This He's worried about a challenge from his fl- right flank. He's worried about hardliners challenging him, which two years after, less than two years after this, is exactly what's going to happen. Uh, a guy named Brezhnev is going to challenge Khrushchev and basically force him out of power. Uh, and so this helps to weaken him at home. Uh, and so that's kind of a very real legacy of this as well. So this is a, a big defining moment. It defines Soviet, like a new era of Soviet-U.S. relationship as we move into the 60s. Yeah, and I, I think it's important too I, uh, that not knowing, obviously, during it, but that Kennedy's presidency will not extend so long past this mm-hmm. event. This really will be such a huge part of his legacy, of the um, way in which Kennedy's remembered, especially in the immediate years after his death, is this steady leadership, this man who kept us, right, who pursued the middle ground, who kept us from war, who saved these lives, who allowed cooler heads to prevail, and yet also got the upper hand on Mm -hmm. the Soviets. So it really does, I think this event in particular, really burnishes Kennedy's legacy in those immediate years, those people who lived through that crisis. Uh, and it's part of what makes Kennedy, I think, so beloved yes. um, as an American president, uh, especially because, as, as you said, you know, he's not going to have this is this is the biggest moment. I mean, he's only president for so long. And this is really the biggest moment. If it hadn't been this, it might have been the Bay of Pigs that everybody remembered, which would not have been as great. Not an ideal. No. Yeah, I agree. What if we, we would be going, oh, that big mistake. Yeah. He made. So now this is like this big moment of diplomacy and you know, sort of waiting an extra beat before going to war. Um, yeah, which I think is really key. And this is this is such a dramatic moment. It has a ton of sort of pop culture connections to it and a ton of, and I think like a lot of things related to Kennedy in general, right? Almost every year you get a documentary, you get a movie, you get something that ties into this. I do think one important thing um, that comes out of this is a book that's written by Robert F. Kennedy called 13 Days. He writes a memoir of this crisis, very much centered on on him and his brother. It's very much uh, insight into what they were doing and discussing some of which was way outside of what the general XCOM mm-hmm. was discussing. Um, and this is something he'd been working on and writing, and then he is assassinated in 1968, so it's published the next yeah. year. Um, that book has become the basis for many of the documentaries that get made about this crisis. Uh, they, it's based off of Bobby Kennedy's recollection. And then there's a pretty good movie that comes out um, called 13 Days, uh, inspired by the same book. Um, 13 Days, if you guys haven't seen, if you're listening to this, haven't seen it, it's pretty good, honestly. I, good. I, I, I have a soft spot it's for it. It's pretty good. It's got Kevin, it's got Kevin Costner. It's got the whole cast is so stacked for Screenwood. It's so good. My favorite little thing about this movie, though, is that it comes out and then Costner, Kevin Costner, goes to Cuba in 2001 and he screams the movie for Fidel Castro. <laughs> I love that. And Costner later says it was sort of this experience of a lifetime to sit a few feet away from this man and watch him have to live out or watch him watch this movie that he had to live through. But this idea of Kevin Costner going to Cuba with Fidel Castro, who in 2001 is an old man, to watch this movie about the crisis and several of Kennedy's living advisors had quibbles about the movie, in particular about the way certain advisors 
were um, represented, but frankly, the overall feeling from a lot of historians and a lot of people who were around is that it's a pretty faithful depiction of how this escalates and how this plays out. You know, certain people feel that some people get more credit than others, but uh, if you're looking for a good kind of, I think, overview of what this is like, I'd recommend the movie. There's also a pretty good Hitchcock film. I mentioned Hitchcock earlier in terms of like the kind of vibe you could do with a movie. He actually did make a movie that's sort of set during the run-up to this called Topaz, which is really quite good. Um, but it really focuses on, on French spies leading up to the Cuban Missile Crisis. So it's not a film explicitly about yes. this. However, mm -hmm. I think for my favorite pop culture Cuban Missile Crisis moment, um, and I think this speaks more to what it was like outside of the political world, is Mad Men, which is by far one of my favorite television series ever, I think one of the greatest TV shows of the 21st century. Um, the season finale of the second season is Meditations in an Emergency. Um, and this is really looks at what it would have been like to have been sort of the average American in this lead up and the way in which people respond to potentially the end of the yeah. world. Yeah. I love 13 years. Um, and not, uh, not, to, not to spoil too much about Mad Men, but you sort of have people reconciling with, should I bring a baby into a world that's about to end? Do I come clean? Do I tell the truth? Do I freak out? Do I trust the mm -hmm. government? You know, do I trust that Kennedy's going to take care of it? Um, and it's sort of fascinating in the episode to see how generationally there's different levels of trust in Kennedy and his his government and his advisors. Um, so if you want something that really captures, I think that mood of panic, fear, apocalypse, uh, it's a great episode of TV, but it also really is a beautiful, I think, look at the Cuban Missile Crisis uh, from a ground nice. level. I love 13 Days. I think it's a great movie. I think Kevin Costner's good in it, but everybody else is so much better. Uh, the guy who plays Bobby Kennedy in particular is- Stephen yes, Culp. Who was on the West Wing for a while. Uh, he's really great. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yes, so the Cuban Missile Crisis is very rich in pop culture. It is like a great, because it's such a compact moment. You know, there's you could, there's a beginning, middle, and end. And so in 13 days. And so it's really a good way to sort of talk about stuff like this. Um, so thanks come, for coming along with us on our little Cold War uh, excursion here at the end of October. It's, you know, it's not like a ghost story or anything, but it is scary. It is scary to, and, and, and what has sort of come out in the years since of like how, tr when you, when you really talk to the Soviets that were there and the Americans that were there, how close it might've just been to all it would have taken was one person firing off to one do something thing. different. And it really is like, if you talk to or to not follow an order or for a, a, an order to get crossed. And right. And like, if we would have been, I'm sure that, you know, people who were around at that time, like my parents were both alive at that time and they remember being terrified. Too, yeah. You know, this is literally the end of the world, you know, and it's a whole like a generational thing. We don't remember this, but this is going to be such a defining moment for so many people who live through this. Uh, Absolutely. Yes. This was a great topic. Thank you so much, Rebecca. Um, we will have something special coming up for our patrons soon. So if you're a patron, first of all, thank you. We love our patrons. If you're not, it's never too late to join our patrons, get access to a special feed. They're getting special bonus episodes. This month, they're getting something extra spooky from our colleague, Melissa. So um, we're really excited for that. Um, so if you're not a patron, consider joining. Um, it's just a way to help us keep this podcast alive. Um, 
as always. We just want to thank all our listeners, though. You guys are wonderful. Uh, we love engaging with you on social media. Don't forget to pitch the pod. Send us your ideas. We have a lot of great suggestions that are making up episodes over the next couple of months. Um, and you can follow us at Tour Guide Tell All on Instagram and Facebook at Tour Guide Tell on Twitter and tourguidetellall at gmail.com if you ever want to send us feedback, questions, anything at all. Thank you guys very much. We'll be back with you in November. See you soon. Thanks, guys.